Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. It is Thursday afternoon, late afternoon, so there should have been enough time for everybody to get their questions in. So let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Kofi, David McKenna says they have a question regarding PAL versus NTSC. So um, I definitely have to pause before I even read the rest of your question and say I am not even remotely close to an expert on PAL stuff, but I will try my best. So to continue your question, they're from the UK and all their consoles are in the PAL format. They have a modified PS2 Classic, PS2, and Dreamcast. Their understanding is that they should use NTFS games, or <laughs> NTFS, just I'm an IT nerd, NTSC games where possible so that I can get 30 frames per second as opposed to 25. With the PS Classic, they could set the PAL games to run in NTSC format, and indeed, they could see the games running at 30 frames per second. With the Dreamcast, they could output pretty much all games in 480p, and also with Free McBoot on the PS2, they could output most PAL games in NTSC. Are there any downsides to doing this lag and frame pacing issues? So that I probably can answer. Um, there would be no issues with lag whatsoever as long as everything is set in the way that you described. So you're not using an external box with a frame buffer to convert them to these things. So you should not have to worry about lag at all. As far as like frame pacing issues, you could get some screen tearing depending on how you're playing it, what you're looking at it on, what type of display, all that other stuff. But you know, if frame rate is that important to you, then screen tearing might be something that doesn't bother you as much and you just have to deal with the trade-off. So it's kind of like, you know, you have a giant 32-inch TV that you love using for light guns that only accepts composite, so you just accept that you're going to see composite interference all over the screen, you know, as, as opposed to like a very beautiful 14-inch RGB monitor, which looks gorgeous, but it's not as fun for light gun games, at least, you know, in my opinion. So while that's, you know, while that analogy has nothing to do with your question, I think it does sum up the whole, sometimes you got to just have a trade-off. And if that's the situation that you're locked to, I don't know if frame tearing or if screen tearing would really drive me that crazy, uh, especially because you do get different frame rates. But that's one of those things where I'm 99% sure there's no lag added. So just give it a try and see what feels best. Over on Floatplane, the importer wants to know what emulation options are out there for playing N64 games on a consumer-grade CRT with component video. So not an original console, not Wii with a virtual console, and not a PC that's been tweaked to output 15 kilohertz. At that point, the only thing I would say is try a Raspberry Pi 4 with either the HDMI to component tweak or one of the hats that outputs component. It's been a long time since I've messed with that, and I think I vaguely remember last time getting that working uh, as far as HDMI to component, but it's been two years probably. So um, that would be the thing I would try just because if you already have those components, it would be pretty easy to try out. And if you bought those components in order to give this a try and it didn't work or you didn't like the results, there's like 50 things you could do with a Raspberry Pi 4 or an HDMI to component converter. So as long as you're a tinkerer that doesn't like or doesn't mind messing with this stuff, I would pick those up and see. But I don't know of any other 240p solutions out there that would be component video other than that. So uh, if that's something you're interested in, give it a try and, and let me know what, uh, what your results are. 
Retro Sean wanted to chime in about the discussion regarding analog and digital outputs on the Wii U. Sean just wanted to remind everybody that it will only do one video output at a time, which we discussed last week. But Sean's reminding everybody that you can run HDMI video and enable analog audio at the same time. So technically, both ports would work at the same time, but if you're using HDMI, you only get audio out of the analog port. Um, And if you're then using analog video, I don't think anything would come out of the HDMI port. So, um, you know, it's a good tip. I totally forgot about that. And that would make sense if you have a setup that's running like that, where you would want to separate audio, but that's a a good thing to mention. In general, they thought also that the Wii U didn't upscale original Wii games to 1080p very well, and they seem ugly on a 1080p TV and pretty bad on a 4K one. They want to try setting it to 480p and running through a RetroTINK 5X, but they still haven't been able to pick up an RT5X yet. Yeah, there's still, uh, I vaguely remember thinking that as well, but then I also remember reading a thread that said there were tweaks in in order to make it look better. So one day I'll I'll swing back around to Wii U testing, but it certainly is an interesting console. And if you can get Wii games looking great through it, then it would probably be a good option. Now over on the YouTube support service, Scotter140 said they recently set up a hard drive to boot backups on their PlayStation 2. And I assume by that they're using OpenPS2 Loader or something. Uh, And they had one game crash and another game seemed to run a little bit slow. So they were wondering if there's any solid data on compatibility and performance. Uh, So... I think that there's a few things involved here. First of all, running off of even a mechanical hard drive should be as fast as running a DVD, unless the drive is broken, of course. Um, I think I use an SSD in mine or something like that, but uh, or even I've seen SD cards. But overall, as far as running games off the hard drive, if there was any slowdown issues, it would be because of something inside the PS2. However, Beast taught me a trick last year that totally worked in that if you plug in your network adapter to your network and boot these games, before you boot them, you could download recommended settings and stuff like that and automatically download updates. And as soon as I did that, a bunch of games that weren't booting before now did boot because it automatically looked up what the proper settings were for that game just by being connected to a network. Now, there is also a way coming up that makes it easier to play PlayStation 2 games off of your network. So instead of dealing with a hard drive at all, you just leave the network adapter plugged in and play them all off a network share. Uh, There's a few ways to do that, but there's a new way coming soon. So stay tuned about a week for that. Sorry to keep teasing these, but I just, I don't want to spit out information and then have a whole bunch of people ask a bunch of questions that are all going to be answered once the main thing is released. So uh, yeah, definitely recommend trying that when it comes out, but at the very least, plug your PS2 into the network and see if that helps. And lastly, they didn't see a PS2 Firebrand X profile for the open source scan converter. Are there any recommended settings? Um, That's a great question, and I've really just used generic for PS2. However, like you pointed out, Bob D interlacing is a bit shaky and flickery, which, you know, doesn't bother some people. It drives other people crazy. But if the PlayStation 2 is your absolute favorite console, I would strongly recommend looking into the GVS control or the RetroTINK 5X because the motion adaptive deinterlacing is pretty, it's pretty impressive on both, to be honest. Uh, and in fact, anybody that joined the CRT live stream I did last week, this week, whenever it was, um, they saw 
with their own eyes how how good it was and you know how much different it could have been than bobdy interlacing but you know it's never going to be as good as running a native 480p so if you already have a setup like this where you're booting open ps2 loader maybe look into which games can be forced into 480p mode because that would be a much bigger difference than anything else and the open source scan converter could pass that right through or even line double it to 960p if your tv is compatible so all those are decent options now over on patreon alex wanted to chime in Hey, Alex. <laughs> uh, FYI, that crackling sound that the analog pocket dock makes is not electrical. It's just the springs and contacts relaxing after they're disconnected. Their dock makes the same sound, and it still makes it even when there's no power being fed to it, or you connect or disconnect a loose USB-C extension cable to the USB-C connector that the pocket sits on. Allegedly, it's something that'll get quieter or just stop eventually once the components are a little more worn in, so don't sweat it. I still have not opened the box that it came in, but if that's correct, then and I agree 100% with Alex. It's a non-issue. Just ignore it. Um, if it really is just a spring, that's not going to be doing anything, and it will deaden over time. So, uh, you know, I've had. A, I think I have a few people tell me that. So it seems like fact. Uh, so I would. I would agree and say, don't worry about that at all. Just ignore it. It's not a big deal. Dan Bailey wanted to follow up from last week about the coupler and uh, the extension cable that we were talking about. And they were using it because they RGB modded their Sony consumer grade TV and just wanted an easier way to get to it so that they could leave a cable plugged in and kind of go from there. Um, they temporarily solved the issue by just using a different SCART cable. But this is definitely the type of situation where I would recommend a known good switch. So the Otaku switch, the cheapest one they have is great. Um, obviously, I'm a huge fan of the G-SCART switches, but that's just one of those things that you get yourself a good shielded cable, you leave that sucker plugged in, and then you could just plug in as many consoles as you want. But obviously, if you're on a budget, you know, start with exactly what you've started with and kind of work your way up to the final solution. But thanks for chiming in. I was curious about that, uh, and I think I gave a, a good recommendation. I think I guessed well for your setup. So sounds awesome. I hope you're enjoying the RGB modded TV. A tonal assassin was also chiming in from the discussion of last week, and I'm glad they did because it turns out that uh, my lucky guess that the HDMI splitter could have been the issue was the issue. It seems that when using the RetroTINK 2X Mini and splitting that out, one going to a TV and then the other one going to, I believe it was an HDMI to VGA converter, um, they weren't getting any signal with, I believe, the A-Video brand splitter. And then when they switched to the EasyCo, that seemed to work. Um, funny, I was actually going to suggest trying one of those VHD switches because they work pretty good as long as the, the analog audio output's okay, but other than that, they're totally fine uh, because it's it should be different chipsets inside where I thought the EasyCoo and the A-Video were similar, but it could have just been that yours was bad, which is totally fine because it sounds like you got it from Amazon and were able to just replace it. So um, thanks for following up. I was definitely curious about that because I had done that exact scenario before and I was second guessing myself like, hmm, what switch did I use? What splitter did I use? What everything else? But I, I appreciate the follow-up, and I'm really glad it was working for you. So as always, anybody that wants any of this stuff, go to retrorgb.link forward slash Amazon, and that's links to all of the stuff that I use, including HDMI equipment like that. And especially with a global part shortage, you never know if what you're going to get is the same that I got, but that's why I leave links to places like Amazon where you should totally be able to return it if it doesn't perform well. So thanks for the follow-up. 
Colin Kenny is a fellow musician and wants to know what guitar or bass pedals I like to use with my rig. Uh, I'm a guitarist, not a bassist. I have one just when I need to write a riff, but I'm terrible at it. But my guitar rig um, is my favorite amp I've ever played on was that EVH5153. It's kind of blurred out in the background, but that's the one there. And I absolutely love the sound of that amp. And my whole life, I had chased that sound. And I had spent years messing with amps and getting those digital amps, the Line 6 Veta series and uh, plugins and everything I could do to try to sound like what I heard in my head when I was writing these riffs and stuff like that. And I came close once. There was a Laney Ironheart series amp that I think Killswitch Engage used. So I'm like, well, I love Killswitch. Let me try those. I had the same setup as their Maxon 808 pedal with the knobs turned in the opposite directions. And it was great. I sounded good. I loved it. But that amp, when I found it and I plugged my guitar in and I hit a couple of chords, I just went, holy shit, this is me. This is the sound I've had in my head my whole life. Uh, so that's what I've stuck with. And I don't technically use any pedals at all. Uh, I had a, the guitar going directly into a tuner first, just because, you know, I mean, you could count that as a, a pedal, but you could also use the new clip-on ones that are excellent. So uh, I guess technically that. And also I would use the ISP decimator, which is a noise gate, where if you're not playing metal, then, you know, or if you're really only playing clean guitar, you don't need it. But anybody that has distortion in their amp, uh, that is like a necessity and it doesn't change the sound. It's the equivalent of you rolling your volume down when you stopped playing. And the reason I went out and bought one of those is I played kind of a bigger gig and there was one part of one of the songs that's like, and every time there was a pause, it would get a huge feedback. So I was had to like jump on the, um, the tuner pedal every time I stopped playing so that it wouldn't feed back. And it sounded weird. I, I kind of pulled it off, but I looked ridiculous jumping up and down on stage hitting the pedal, trying to stop it. So I went out and, and looked up what's the best. And everybody at the time at least said it was the ISP decimator. And I still have it, even though I don't really play live gigs anymore, or I wish I did, but you know, I, I have that one. So technically my pedals would really have been a tuner and the ISP decimator noise gate. But if you're talking about pedals to change the sound of the music at all, the only one I ever really used was the reverb built into the amp and a wah-wah pedal, which I would sometimes use and sometimes not. You know, I'm not going to Kirkham at all my songs, but I did think there was at least one solo and then half of another solo that kind of was cool with a wah-wah pedal live, but I didn't really do that on the album. So that was just whatever I was in the mood for and, and all of that stuff. So I guess you could say that's my full thing. If you wanted to count reverb, the reason I added reverb was anytime it was clean, I always thought it was a better sound, but also during solos just to boost the volume a hair, just so I could be heard over the other instruments. Um, so it's as basic as a rig as possible. Now, I will say that if I started to play live gigs again, what I would really like to do is get something like the Kemper floor pedal, the Axe FX floor pedal, and there's two new ones that are out. Um, check out Music with Marky on YouTube. It's a friend of mine. Um, I was on there a couple times and he reviews a lot of that stuff and they, they're all so close to the original amp that it's almost indiscernible. I still can because for some insane reason, even in my old age, I could still totally pick out what's a real amp, but it's at the point now where I would never be able to live 
And that's really kind of you at that point, you would decide what you want to do. Do you want to just plug into whatever amp the gig has there? So you're just carrying your floor pedal or they have rack mount versions, but I loved the idea of carrying everything I needed in my pedal board. <laughs> so I'd have that and I would probably use either whatever amp they had. You could go direct into the PA, but that is all that is a gamble. I used to do that for a little while and uh, the only two responses we got are, holy crap, you sounded so amazing, or I couldn't hear any of your instruments. It was never in the middle. It either worked great or it was awful. So you want some kind of onstage noise. Um, and then, you know, after that, you could decide if you want to record with it. I know a lot of people that do. Mark does. Mark has his patches and his Axe Effects and his Kemper. He picks out his favorite, and that's the the stems that he ends up giving the mixing engineer or for his own songs he mixes himself because he just dialed in the exact sound that he wants. And especially with leads, you'll I don't think you could ever tell the difference. Um, and as far as other solutions go, because those floor pedals that I just talked about, those are like two grand each. You know, you can get one of them for a grand, but then they charge you a ton of money for an extra pedal and the case and all that stuff. So they're expensive solutions. So I kind of wanted a happy medium for here. Uh, here, meaning my, my house, and especially when I was in the city and I didn't want to turn on an amp. I didn't even have the amp in my apartment. So I wanted something that I could put my headphones through. I wanted something that sounded good enough. And I also wanted something that I could root my cell phone or my computer. So, because when I practice, I play uh, I play along with drum tracks. So I could, uh, it's a good way to keep your time and, uh, and kind of just practice as if you were live. So I found this, um, the Line 6 Pod Go. Now, comparing it to those other pedals is not fair. The other pedals are all better in absolutely every way, but price. This sucker was like 450 and it was a little bit of a learning curve. I preferred plugging it into my PC and using the USB connection to program it. I was able to get a third-party site that had patches that sounded close enough to my amp. Uh, and it even had, you know, I had guitar in. It has the, um, the loop through so I could play along the drum tracks. It's got headphones. Um, and it even does have an amp out. So I guess, I, I guess maybe... Um, since I already own that, if somebody asked me to go do a gig with them and I had to like, you know, I was, was limited with what I could carry, I could probably use this, turn off the cab emulation and then just go through anybody's clean tube amp on stage. Um, I don't know if I would, you know, at this point, I, I think I would probably just do anything to be able to play a cool gig live again. But if it was like my band and we were even on a mini tour, like a, you know, a three day weekend tour, I would either want the real amp or one of the, the really high end amp modulations where you could never tell while playing live, but that one's totally good enough. And I wanted to talk about it because I know a lot of musicians listen, which I think is amazing, but cost for what you're doing is so important to me. It is just super easy to just go out and get one of those Kempers and profile your individual amp and you have a 99.9% .9 perfect recreation. $2,500 later. Whereas for 400 bucks, you know, that, that I don't get upset when I'm playing it. The other uh, pedals I used to use for practicing, it would annoy me because it just sounded like garbage. It sounded like something I would have used when I was 13 and broke learning how to play. So that's absolutely good enough. I'll leave a link to the one I got. It's an affiliate link because I'm broke and I got to pay the bills here, but I'm not lying about it. <laughs> I just talked for seven minutes about how much I liked the other solutions better. So clearly I'm not shilling it, but for the money, I think it is an awesome pedal for anybody 
up into up to metal as well. But like if you're playing a lot of cleaner stuff, you, you could be far less picky because it's easier to dial in your sound. It's really those high powered tube amp emulation that that I get picky about, and that does it does better than a four hundred dollar job. That's the best way I'll say it. So, you know, thanks for asking the question. I love talking about music. I'll talk about anything on these Q&As. And I'm sure if anybody who's here for retro gaming stuff uh, is still listening, might be annoyed that I rambled on about it. But I love I love metal so much. I love playing so much. And I'm going to try anything I can to get back playing again. I don't know if I'd need to motivate myself or something, but uh, I really, really miss it. And uh, I, I appreciate the question. And speaking of affiliate links... These weekly Q&As are brought to you by you. I just wanted to take a moment to thank everybody who supports in any way possible because people who support on services like Patreon or Floatplane or Ko-fi or any of the ways to support directly are the only reason I'm able to keep doing these, especially these weekly Q&As. So I usually thank everybody at the end, but I get a lot of questions from people that probably didn't listen to the end. So I just want to remind everybody that these Q&As are a way to say thank you to everybody who supports. Uh, There are, of course, people out there that love to remind everybody that technically that means I'm charging you to answer questions. And if that's how you would like to look at it, that is up to you. And there's nothing I could ever do to change your mind on that. But if you do support and you do want to be part of these Q&As, ask any question you have wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. Because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an older post. Plus, I really like just scrolling through in real time like you see here. So if you already support or if you would like to support and you have a question, uh, ask anything you'd like. As you could probably have already heard, I love answering questions about retro gaming, but also other things that I'm hugely involved in like music, guitar, heavy metal especially, and beer because look at me clearly i like beer so thank you all very much sorry for the shameless self uh, self-promotion but this was also a giant thank you as well and i wanted to do it in the middle of the podcast this time instead of at the end because hopefully more people would be able to hear so back to the q a's a couple of questions from jason guffey first they keep all of their soldering equipment out in the garage but it's cold as hell in their neck of the woods and they're wondering if powering it on from below freezing to then get warm to then letting it get really cold again is bad for the equipment um, so first of all, I'm freezing here too. The living in the burbs is way, way different than living in a, a New York apartment where you have all of the heat from all the apartments below you seating up. So I'm, I'm frozen. I've been wearing a hoodie every single day. Uh, luckily I have some very cool ones that I could also get to support my, my friends and their, uh, their t-shirt or hoodie sales. But so no, it's not good. But how bad is it actually? In a perfect world, you would keep every single piece of electronic equipment in a humidity and temperature controlled sealed room, but that's not realistic at all. And it's just something that you would want to kind of just decide investment versus effort. So if you found yourself a D24 calibrated BVM or like the FW900 monitors and you wanted to make sure that lasted forever... Yeah, if you're going to leave it out in below freezing temperature, make sure that it's not below the temperature rated in the service manual and then bring it inside and let it get to room temperature, you know, which might take a day before turning it on. Definitely, I would do that. But a $50 soldering station, 
It's just for me personally, 50 bucks isn't a small amount of money, but if I had to wait three hours every time I wanted to solder something, I'd rather just lose 50 bucks every year or so because I killed my soldering iron 10 times as fast as I would have if I had let it sit at room temperature. So that one's going to have to be up to you, but it is my personal opinion that equipment that is expensive or very important to you should be treated with care. Um, I would probably never go through the insane efforts of having a sealed temperature and humidity controlled room, but keeping things inside as opposed to in a garage or in a shed that I know I'm going to be using randomly or on a regular basis, that I definitely would do. Um, But that's totally going to be up to you. And, you know, I I would have no problem taking equipment that was inexpensive or, or maybe not cheap, but something I could easily replace if something went wrong. I wouldn't really have too much of a problem doing that. I just would try to plan ahead if possible. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to recap my TV. All right, let me bring my equipment in tonight. But if it's like, holy crap, something just broke. I got to fix it. I got stuff to do. I I wouldn't even blink. I'd bring it right in, plug it in and be done with it. So, but that's going to be up to you to decide. Next, they started turning their CRT monitor's brightness all the way down to zero and setting the contrast to about 60 or so out of 100. They noticed their black levels are fantastic at zero brightness, but they're wondering if this is the bad for the tube in any way. Uh, 60 out of 100 contrast is what they normally use regardless while their brightness is usually 20. Um, I don't imagine that that's a bad thing because at the end of the day, it's still an electron gun firing beams or a beam of light at the back of a piece of glass. So turning down the brightness would just turn down the intensity of that light. And I just, once again, a hundred percent opinion here. If you're doing that because you genuinely think it looks best to your eyes in that scenario, maybe you're in a dark room or something do it. If you're doing that just because you think it might prolong the life of the tube, and that's not what you said, I'm just hypothetical situation here, I I would personally set it to what your eyes prefer and not worry so much about the rest of it. Uh, If anybody else knows any more about this and how that could potentially be damaging, please let me know. I just can't visualize a scenario in which that would happen. So I think you're totally fine. Uh, Lastly, very serious question, who would win between me and Voltar? No context needed, but who would win? Me, clearly. Last week, Jerry had a question about using the Ashenworks RGB to YC, which is a device that takes RGB in and outputs it to, I believe, dual S-video and composite. But as we've learned over the past few years, RGB to composite doesn't quite work yet on any converter, not just the Ashenworks one. And I kind of misunderstood the question from last week. So thank you, Jerry, for being patient enough to explain it. But in that setup, they have RGB going in and then they have two S-video outs, one going to a PVM, one going to the RetroTINK 5X. Um, when they switch from NTSC to PAL consoles, NTSC was all fine, but the PAL console will work on the PVM, but not on the uh, the RetroTINK 5X when it's set to NTSC mode. So I misunderstood last week and said, well, yeah, you got to switch it to PAL if you're mo- using a PAL console, but that's not what Jerry meant. Uh, first and foremost, the reason you would have left it at NTSC and it still works on 
the PVM is probably because the PVM is multi-format and can handle both signals. So it probably just read it as like, ah, something's weird, but we know how to make this work. Obviously, I'm over oversimplifying, but that's just my guess. Uh, so that is definitely why it wouldn't work going into the RetroTINK 5X, though. Now, when you switch, because uh, you're sending an, a PAL to a converter that's converting it to NTSC color space, so it'd be confused. But here's the problem that Jerry's talking about that I misunderstood from last week, and I don't know if I have a, uh, an answer for this. In that same scenario, if they flip the switch to PAL on the Ashenworks converter and they're using a PAL console, on both, uh, it results in loss of colors on both the PVM and the RetroTINK 5X. So that is pretty interesting because Jerry mentioned that if they plug S-Video directly from the console into the Tink, it works fine from the PAL console or the NTSC console. So the only thing I would imagine is there could always be a problem with the RGB to YC. I mean, with electronics production, there's always going to be a one or 2% chance that, uh, you know, that something's wrong in it. So that could be it. You might want to mention to Ashen, but I, I don't know. I'm not really sure what else it could be. I have one of those here, but I don't have any access to PAL consoles at the moment. I think some are buried in here. So I guess uh, that now you explained it perfectly. Um, the only thing I would suggest is maybe email Ashen and just skip to the end and say, when I do RGB to S-Video in NTSC all the way, it works fine. But if I do RGB PAL to S-Video, it doesn't work. Um, and see what he says. Maybe it's a quick thing. Maybe there's two switches and I forgot or something. I don't I don't think so. But I, I would start from there. And if Ashen doesn't have an answer, um, remind me again. And I could try to unbox and find my stuff. And I, I would test it here as well. Because that's interesting. Everything should work exactly as you described. Now, of course, I don't need to tell you that you could just take RGB and go to a different kind of switch or go directly into the retro tank that way. But that's obviously going to be workflow for your setup to have everything working at once. So I, I get why you would do that. Um, but you know, certainly a, uh, certainly a decent solution, just going direct RGB if you needed something in the short term. Eric Fleener wants to know if there's any issues with using a Japanese Nintendo 64 in the U S would there be an issue with power and should they swap the Japanese power adapter out for a U.S. OEM power adapter? So you'd have to start with specs. Uh, are there printed specs that say the input voltage tolerance of that power supply? And if not, and you open up the power supply, is it written on the board inside? Uh, is it variable? You know, is it something that could handle 100 to 220 volts? Or is it really only designed for US or Japan power? But my opinion is if you've taken the time to import a console from Japan and you don't know the answer to that, or there isn't good info out, yeah, I, I personally would probably just use a US power adapter and not really think of anything else because uh, you just wouldn't have to worry at that point. It's just, you know, everything would line up. I did want to mention the other thing first, though, because this could be a case where Nintendo just said, hey, it's cheaper overall to, to manufacture millions of one power supply than multi-regions with multi-specs in it. So, you know, let's just use all of the same for Japan and North America. I don't know. So that's something you would have to research or not research at all and just get a US power adapter. Um, definitely a great question though. The other thing you did mention, of course, is the cartridge trays, because you can't use US games and Japanese N64s or vice versa. I showed that in the N64 video, so I'll leave a link to that, but LaserBear, 
Laser Bear, not sponsored by, but I still love them. Laser Bear has a uh, uh, has a solution for that that's cheap and easy and looks nice. So I'll leave a link for anybody that's interested. Vladimir Raskin wants to know what's the best way to extend a SCART connection without adding lag or degrading quality. The exact scenario in which they're trying to use this is an MSX computer, which if anybody hasn't seen them, it's like the computer built into the big keyboard from the 80s and 90s, I guess. And the options that Vladimir would have at that point is to either get another monitor that's dedicated just for the MSX, which of course is a solution we would all want. We all want a giant basement or a giant warehouse that we could make up as our retro gaming room with each console hooked up to their own display and all those other awesome things. And if you have the space and the the cash for that, yeah, it's always going to be everybody's first choice. Like, imagine how cool it would be if you just set up your basement so that every console was on the exact CRT that you felt was your favorite way to experience it. That's some super nerd shit right there, and I'd love to do that, but that's not realistic. So what Vladimir wanted to do was take a very long SCART cable and connect that from the MSX to the G-SCART switch setup that they have. But they already have two daisy-chained G-SCARTs and a G-Comp switch connected to a PVM and a RetroTINK 5X. So would that cause any issues adding a really long SCART cable or two SCART cables with a coupler in the middle or something like that? And there's always the same answer to this. Any time you add any length or component to an analog video, or I guess maybe even audio signal, you will degrade the quality. How much is the only thing that's debatable? And one of the great uh, indications of that was the SCART coupler video, where we took a look at MD Fourier analysis and found out that um, there is a small difference in a two-inch cable, or the coupler in this case, or you know a, a three-foot, fully shielded, incredibly well-built cable but there's not enough of a difference to ever hear that with your ears, period. But there was a measurable difference, like you put it on a scope or something like that. So what I would say is um, I would do exactly what you suggested and try to find uh, a SCART coupler, uh, both a plug-to-plug, which those can be finicky. I have one that like you basically need to duct tape the cables in, otherwise you're going to lose signal. So you might want to buy two different brands and use the best one or buy one and see if you get lucky. And then buy a long SCART cable. And those, uh, I'm not sure where you're located, but those Cable Direct, K-A-B-E-L-D-I-R-E-T or something, they're not fully shielded cables. They're not the best cables I've ever had, but they're cheap. So I would look into getting one of those and seeing if that solves all of your problems. Because I understand having that with your keyboard sitting on your lap connected to your PC or uh, to your TV would be great. The only thing I might suggest is if you have two G-SCARTs daisy-chained, um, either plug it into the first one so you're not going through more equipment so you're skipping less equipment or if the daisy chain has a distance between them plug it into the closer one to you so maybe you don't need the whole cable basically experiment with where you should plug it in and see if you see a difference you might not you might not see any difference at all the other thing too is you know plug your msx in directly to the gscart walk back to your couch stare at the screen for you know 30 seconds then grab it plug it into the extension cable sit back down on the couch and see if all of a sudden you're like whoa there's wavy interference the signal's dimmer this is strange then you know that you got to figure out something but if you sit on the couch and it looks pretty much the same you're good to go the one good piece of news i have for you is there is 
no chance of adding lag this way. Um, you know, it's basically running the speed of light down the cable. So unless, I mean, you'd have to have a cable that like wrapped around the earth to gain much lag, if any, from that. I'm being a little facetious, but hopefully uh, you could visualize that when I use a ridiculous example and that you have nothing to worry about. 12 foot SCART cable is not going to add any lag and as opposed to a one foot SCART cable. So Excellent question. Sounds like a cool as hell setup, but I would, I'm going to leave a link. If they're still available, I'll leave a link to the cheap SCART cable. Just please know that this is not the best SCART cable. It's just cheap and a great way to start your setup, but you could very well buy this and go, eh, it's too much interference. I'll go buy an expensive fully shielded one. But, you know, depending on your budget and the time you want to spend, this this might be a great way to start because it might just work fine. The Remora has a couple questions. I'm going to answer them out of order. Just uh, I think it'll flow easier. First, they just got an SNES one chip 03. And is there any reason not to use their HD retrovision cables with it as is? No, that's a perfectly good solution. And to be honest, I don't think you would really ever need another solution. The only time you would is if you're going maybe through like a RetroTINK 5X or any of the next gen scalers to a 4K TV. If you're scaling to 1440p, the bypass, you probably would notice a sharpness difference, but it's not a huge difference. It's not at all, you know, the non-one chips to the one chips. It, it's just a sharpness difference that if you have, a, maybe if you had an OLED TV, it would be a little more noticeable, but that's up to you. Um, but just wanted to put that into perspective because I think some people misunderstand and think you have to mod the bigger SNESs. And if you have a one chip, you don't but you can. So the, is there any reason not to use the HD retrovision cables with it? Not at all. It's an awesome solution. Next, where do they pull the signal for C-Sync to run to the bypass board? You do not need it if you're using HD retrovision cables, but I completely and totally understand if you're uh, of the mindset of, Hey, the one chip O3s don't have C-Sync going to the multi out. If I'm going to take the time to mod it, why not do it right in case I ever switch to SCART? Uh, but they are, that is covered on the website. So I'll leave a link there just so that you would see. Um, but you basically just pull it from a slightly different spot. Uh, no, actually, no, it's right there. You would pull it from the same spot that's right next to the RGB pins. It's a pretty easy addition to it. So uh, I'll leave a link to what you need. Next, in my opinion, is there any reason to flash pseudo Saturn Kai onto their action replay? Um, you have to answer that for yourself. And that's not me being a wise ass. That's the truth. Uh, do you want to use any of different region games or backups on an unmodded Saturn? Are you using it along with an optical drive emulator where you could use it to have features that go along with it? You basically have to look up what it offers over just an action replay and decide for yourself. I like it, but I'm also a nerd that likes ridiculous tools that I might not use more than once, but like knowing that I have them. So if you're one of us, (laughs) then do it. Um, Lastly, do I have any tips on how to bevel cartridges? Uh, Don't do it. All kidding aside, every time I've tried, you need to be so careful. And it's funny because I've gotten hate comments about like, you're an idiot. Anybody could bevel a cartridge. It's super easy. All you have to do is, and I just, the answer is absolutely no. Um, It's complicated because you first have to, you know, you have to 
maybe take a file, let's just say, like a metal big file, and you have to get it at the perfect angle, but you can't scrape the pins when you do it. I mean, you can, but then it takes off some of the material that's on there. That could lead to oxidization. Um, It's just, it's very tough to do. So if you're an artist, if you're somebody like a, a really good carpenter that has the skills, I guess the best way to put it, can you draw a straight line? Can you cut a straight piece of wood? Can you work with your hands and do stuff like that? Maybe give it a try. I have no coordination. I am shocked that I'm good at riding motorcycles and playing guitars because I I have barely any coordination. When I work on carpentry stuff, it just it looks like a middle school shop class. I just it's not it's not easy, and it's not easy for everybody. So maybe practice on something that you know is trash. Maybe you have one of those NES 101 carts that probably run at a million volts and you know explode on impact. Obviously, I'm being silly, but you know, take something that really is trash, not just a game that you need to practice on, and try it that way and see if you could kind of get the groove. But, I mean, I've had people take their cartridge, take it out of the case, obviously, go outside on the concrete and go, and if you looked at that under, uh, you know, with a macro lens, it would look just like a rough factory cut. It would not look like somebody dragged it on concrete. The metal pins weren't touched at all. Everything was even. Blew my mind. And I've seen people use machines, use files, take their time, be careful, and it looks like a horrendous mess. So my tips are be very careful and decide if this is a chance that you want to take. Uh, and you know, the biggest tip is if you get a cartridge that isn't beveled, contact wherever you got it from if it's a new thing and just say this is wrong this is defective here's renee's article on retro rgb here's all of the different things and if you think they're just being picky here's all the other documentation out there that prove that you're wrong the cartridge isn't supposed to be this way now of course there's always scenarios where I, i like to give people the benefit of the doubt and i would you know i would try not to worry about it if it's not something i would use a lot but especially if you're buying one of these like limited edition $200 complete in box things and the cartridge falls out and it's trash. So just my thoughts on that. Hopefully I'll point you in the right direction, but I'll drop links to everything in the description. NerdTech is putting together a setup that includes consoles ranging from Mr. SNES and original Xbox going through a G-Comp switch being split between a TV with component video inputs that only supports 15 kilohertz and a RetroTINK 5X. And they realized that that 15 kilohertz only TV can't run in 480p mode. So they want to know how that's going to affect their setup just as a whole. And what there's things, what are things that could be done in order to, to improve that? So, of course, consoles like PS2 for the games that are compatible, GameCube, Xbox, uh, and any of the 480p stuff on Mr. like old PCs would look way better in 480p. So in that situation... With your current setup, the only thing you should really do is turn the CRT off and then use those through RetroTINK 5X and be able to get that extra performance. Now, if it's a scenario where you need both, like maybe you want to play on the CRT and game on the RetroTINK 5X, setting them to 480i will enable the RetroTINK's motion adaptive deinterlacing. And this is something I actually just showed on that live stream the other day too, is that it's good. It's not as good as native 480p, but it's not bad at all. So if you want to run 480i on your CRT, that's always going to look nice and sharp. But 
through your game uh, through your RetroTINK 5X, that would probably be a very good solution, but not as good. So what you could do in a situation like this is just decide how important this is to you. You could pick up a VGA CRT monitor uh, and something like a component to VGA uh, converter. So that way you could take that output and go from there. Um, you could try to find a multi-sync monitor, but those are really expensive. Uh, so it's really just how much money do you want to spend on the CRT side? How much space do you have? And all, kind of all of that stuff. Um, but I, I do think that from a cost-effective point of view, as long as you have the space, if you really wanted to, having two CRTs, uh, and one just like a VGA monitor and the other one a consumer grade 15 kilohertz TV, that would provide a really excellent solution for absolutely all of those things. You just would really need to figure out a way to switch between them. You said you want everything plug and play, so you would probably need to take that second component video out and put it into another powered component switch or distribution amp or something and get that between your consumer TV and the component to VGA converter for the VGA monitor. And once again, you'd want to turn off where turn off whichever monitor you aren't using. Um, that's going to add some cost. So if you wanted the second monitor, you could just have it set up. So you plug the cables wherever it is that to whatever monitor that you're going into. So there's also never a chance of, uh, of leaving both monitors on for the wrong resolution, but yeah, um, the short answer to your question is using the RetroTINK 5X's motion adaptive deinterlacing is an excellent solution. If you're streaming, it's great. It's you know unless you're a pro streamer who you know who's getting critiqued in every aspect, there's not going to be a noticeable difference for your average people who are just hanging out on your streams. Um, but if it is something that becomes important to you, consider getting a VGA CRT monitor or a multi-sync monitor. But add a zero to the end of that if you're going to try to find multi-sync monitors. So hopefully I pointed you in the right direction. Let me know if you have any other questions. Christopher Deo wants to know that when we're replacing capacitors for doing cap replacements for, you know, preservation or repair, do you also replace the tiny little surface mount ones that are very similar in size and shape to a surface mount resistor? And you know, definitely do want to take the cylindrical ones and replace those as well as any through hole caps. But what about those tiny little like 0605 surface mount? As far as I know, and I I don't claim to be the expert on this, but as far as I know, those don't leak out. Or And if they do, it's certainly not in the same way that the other ones do. So you would only replace them if there was a problem. And one of the things that you could run into is components degrade over time. So a 20% tolerance capacitor might now be a 40% tolerance, and that might eventually be a problem that needs to be repaired. But I don't think we've been seeing that a lot. So I don't know if this should be considered like what everybody does, but it is my personal opinion that I would not worry about those caps now, unless it's something that people have determined, like the C11 SNES Junior cap or the capacitors for Jailbar on all of the PC Engine and Turbo Graphics consoles, unless it's a known issue, I would not worry about those at all. I would worry about the through hole and the cylindrical surface mount ones that you described, and I wouldn't remember, worry about the rest. If I'm wrong, somebody please step up and correct me, because uh, not only do I want to get Christopher's question right, I'd also like to know for myself, but that's just not something I've worried about recently, um, unless it's a known issue, where usually it's something that's pretty well defined. 
James the Naked Snake says they see a lot of people talking about recapping CRTs and consoles, but what are the signs that a console or CRT needs recapping? They understand if a cap is bulging or otherwise damaged on an inspection of the cap, but what else would you be looking for without opening up the CRT or console? Um, you have to unfortunately. Um, there are some obvious ones, like if your CRT worked fine two days ago, but doesn't work today, and it's probably a cap on the power circuit blew out. It could be a lot of things, but in the context of capacitors, that's what I would say. Uh, but I mean, a lot of people have, have a lot of modders get Turbo Express, Game Gears, PC Engine, or Turbo, Graphic, or Turbo Duo consoles that from people that say, hey, you know, I'd like you to install a region mod, a new screen, and hey, could you recap it? And they get the console, they t the modder tests it, everything is working perfectly fine, and they pop it open, and it is a horror show of leaking caps all over the motherboard. So visual inspection's got to be number one. That way you could see and shine a bright flashlight in there. Look with a magnifying glass or like a jeweler's lens if you can. Because so often my friends have posted pictures of a motherboard that seems fine. And then they remove the capacitor and all the fluid leaked out directly underneath that you couldn't really tell. Um, so it's visual inspections, number one. If you really wanted to get crazy, you could remove the capacitor from the board, measure it on an ESR meter, make sure it's the, still the correct capacitance and put it back on. But that's pretty much it. So uh, I wish I had a better answer. I, I would love nothing more than to be like, no, buy the super laser shooter 123 and point it at your console. And if it comes back bad, you need new caps. Uh, I'd love that. But that's just, I don't think realistic. I think you're stuck opening it up. Jared Breland wanted to talk about the last week's Q&A that wouldn't work off all of the audio podcast services. Uh, I have no idea what happened, but I think it's fixed. But shout out to Lewis from Zez Retro and uh, the Cathode Ray podcast, who told me that Anchor, the service we both use, allows you to delete and re-upload audio. I did that, and that seemed to be working afterwards. So I think it's fixed. Um, I was nervous to do so because I didn't know how that would affect anything in Anchor, and I also didn't know if it would then rearrange the podcast, but it seemed to work fine. So uh, it's the first time that's ever happened. Hopefully it just never happens again, but if it does happen again, please let me know. Tweet at me, DM me, message me on Discord, whatever, uh, and at least now I know that it's a super easy fix that I should have up right away. Well, not quite right away. Uh, when you do this, most of the podcast services update within a half hour, but iTunes sometimes can take 24 hours. Sometimes iTunes takes 24 seconds, but that's the only thing. So if it happens again, let me know. But um, I, I'm also just really glad that people are listening on audio-only podcast services because, you know, not telling you not to watch these on YouTube because the, the views certainly are nice to see. But for me personally, I love turning on my friends' podcasts on my phone, in my pocket. So when I'm running around my office doing a bunch of crazy shit for a couple hours, you all come with me and I could just continue to listen. So, you know, I would love to have the time to just sit and watch and, you know, especially sometimes because mannerisms and facial expressions and stuff really do make things, make the conversation better. I just, I, I don't have the time and I know a lot of other people don't. So thank you for trying listening on audio only. And hopefully that's an experience other people will enjoy as well, but they're available everywhere. Just search for Retro RGB. Uh, if you can't find it on your podcast service, let me know. But I think they're on everything. So, uh, you know, thanks again for, for checking that out and for the heads up. But I do, um, I do think that's fixed now and hopefully it won't ever happen again. 
McCall wants to know if the OSD and all of the settings from the Pixel FX also work through the RGB-enabled multi-out. Um, the OSD doesn't. I do think the de-blur does, but not, I don't think any of the other features would be able to. And the smoothing, I don't think would be able to, because if I remember correctly, the smoothing is done as the image is being scaled. So the smoothing wouldn't be applied at all in 240p, only when it was doubled, tripled, whatever, past that. Um, you might want to double check. Uh, I might be getting that wrong. I think I'm remembering correctly, though, which unfortunately means if you want to change settings like RGB or component or, you know, uh, de-blur on or off, you would have to make sure it was connected to a digital display and then go back and switch that. But um, you're not going to be able to get any of the other crazy fancy features on there. I don't think the CRT filters would work either, which I don't know why you would want to because... That would be a CR, you know, it'd be a filter on top of a mask. It would just probably make it look weird. So um, I do understand the why you would want the other features on there, especially the de-blur. It's just not something that could happen in 240p, at least not on original hardware as far as I know. You should be able to do that through emulation, but I'm not really an expert in N64 software emulation, so I'm not sure how that would work. Daniel Adato wants to know if there's a way to test those terrible HDMI console cables for lag using a time sleuth. They would like to make a database that shows how these devices perform so other people could make informed decisions. I did show this in a video. I showed my test setup. I showed the lag test results. It's very gross. These things, if these were not entertainment devices, if these were, if this was a toaster, it would be recalled because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do correctly. Imagine a piece of toast coming out where half of it's burnt and the other half is completely cold. That's the equivalent. These things would be recalled. But because it's an entertainment device, they're able to get around it and saying, well, you know, everybody's experience might be different because they're thieves, essentially, the people who designed these. The other bigger companies that rebrand them, it's kind of one of those, if you can't beat them, join them. And I hate it, but I don't really fault like Hyperkin for doing it as much as I do the people who created it, especially when you know the story of how they, they came to light. It is a scam, 100%. But I show how to do that in the video. I show how to test. I will eat, I will gladly run this down for you here, though. You have to first take your time sleuth and convert that to analog signal. So uh, make, oh, actually, first you have to take your time sleuth and program it for 240p, but you've probably already done that. Then you need to send it through an HDMI to VGA converter. Then you need to take an SNES-style multi-out, the jack version, not the plug version, which there are open-source designs out there that you could easily pick up. Um, there's a bunch of different ways that you could do this. But you have to get one of those, and you wire RGB from the HDMI to VGA converter directly to it. Then you take H and V sync from the VGA converter and put them through a sync combiner. Now, this could be an Extron device. This could be a passive device like I built in the video. Um, or, you know, you could even probably use an HD15 to SCART to get it to a SCART connector and then make yourself a breakout. But at that point, whenever you get S, meaning standard C-sync, not separated sync at the right voltage, then you would need to put that to, I would solder it to both the composite and the C-Sync outputs. You're not pulling both at the same time. The cable will either pull one or the other, uh, and then make sure RGB is connected. If you're using a separate sync connector, you know, do it the way I did before, If you're go or the way I described, if you're running it through an Extron interface or an HD15 to SCART, pull it from there, whatever it is. Uh, and then you're also going to need to add five volts to it because that's how those pound cables and that all of those others are powered is off of the console. Um, and that's pretty much it. So then you would take the time sleuth, 
hold it up to the TV, plug the, the other, you know, console cable into the TV, and that will give you your reading. And you're going to get between seven or between three and eight frames of variable latency, depending on the cable. They're garbage. If your only goal is to play turn-by-turn RPG games, not much motion on the screen, there's no real timing involved in that, or if there are, like, you know, you have a countdown clock, we're not talking about, you know, milliseconds, we're talking about seconds. So they're actually fine. Or if you somehow had an, uh, a way to split the signal, so, and, you know, there's stuff coming out that might help with this, having a composite video output going to a CRT, uh, or, or even an S-video or whatever, and then using one of those cables to stream would also be a good solution. But that, remember, you're not gaming on those cables. Then you would use them as a streaming device. So they're terrible. And if you want to help prove that to people, fine, because there are still people out there that just don't believe me, which drives me nuts. You know, I know how Neil deGrasse Tyson feels when, when somebody yells at him some flat earth or nonsense in there, because it's the same thing. We have all the data. Uh, I've tested a thousand different freaking ways. Uh, and now you can too, if you would like. So it's a pain in the butt. Uh, however, I, I think if you enjoy these things, it might be fun. So I'll leave the link to that video. As well as the video, the worst scaler in retro gaming, not just to prove that that scaler has lag, but also to just to show how many really good uses there are that really end in not gaming. But still, I'll leave the links to both of those because I think they're both relevant to each other and they're they both complement each other in that don't use those things. <laughs> Dude Dudeson said they've been slowly modding all their retro consoles with optical drive emulators and hard drive mods over the past three or four years, but their slim PS2 is a bit of a thorn in their side. What options are there out there for playing backups? They understand that USB is possible, but has some issues with FMVs. Are there better options, or should they hold out for someone to eventually make a PS2 optical drive emulator? Well, first of all, I love the idea of a PS2 ODE. People always laugh at me, and they're like, oh, but there's open PS2 loader. I just think there are some advantages of it in its current form. But I believe that you could boot from a soft-modded memory card to get into something like OpenPS2 Loader and boot games off of your network. I've never done that. I've had people tell me it, and I may have misunderstood. But that would be my number one recommendation. And stay tuned for about a week to hear how I think you should put them on your net, the games on your network. There's other solutions out there now that would work, but there's something coming that I think I think nerds are really going to adopt because it's it it. It's a multi-purpose thing that uh, that would help for lots of these different stuff. So kind of stay tuned for that. I don't want to just start talking about it, get half the info out and confuse and piss people off. I'd rather just wait till I'm able to, to co-announce this and all this other stuff. But I think that's what I would do. The other thing I think you could do is an internal mod that adds a hard drive that kind of dangles out the back. But if I'm not wrong, which I might be, please correct me if I am, but if I'm correct in that you could plug that into your network, boot off a frame boot memory stick, and load games from your network, what's coming would be the recommended way because it's just super easy and there's so many other uses that you could apply to it. So uh, stay tuned. And if I'm wrong about booting games over the network, please let me know because I'd like to know that before I announce the project. Jonathan from Scanline City noticed that several of their arcade boards have a constant high-pitched audio noise. Is there some sort of fix for this? I don't know, Jonathan. Why don't you try making a custom all-metal case to see if the shielding helps? Kidding. I'm a huge fan of of their cases, by the way. But uh, all all joking aside, um, if shielding doesn't help, which I don't think it would, it could possibly be 
bad grounds. It could be aging components, aging capacitors, running out of, uh, you know, running out of spec, causing a high-pitched noise. Um, it, it's really one of those things that you would have to diagnose each individual arcade board, and there might be known issues for each of them. But you also got to remember that these arcade boards were designed to be used in machines in noisy environments. So it is also incredibly plausible that they're just noisy, but no one cared because you'd never hear it if there's 30 other arcade machines and a bunch of asshole screaming children in the same room. So you never really, you know, you never know with arcade boards. It could be the degradation of the components over time. It could be a design flaw. Um, it, it could be a whole bunch of different things. Um, and Jonathan would also love an explanation of how to check the grounds in terms of fixing this audio interference. Um, I'm going to have to defer that one because I would approach each one of these differently and I would approach it with the knowledge, with general knowledge, whereas there are arcade experts out there that could just look at some of these and be like, I've seen that before. You should check it this way. And obviously, I mean, that as a huge compliment to them. So, um, you know, I think I would just check the very basics. Are there any bulging or leaking caps? Um, you know, is there any components that, you know, if you look up that arcade board that are just known, like the Mortal Kombat secondary audio boards, those are known issues. You need to recap them. You need to fix the amp. Sometimes you've got to fix traces. Like, that's something that people in the community have identified a long time ago. So I would research the board individually, and um, and then I would also kind of go from there as to how to double-check the grounds on these things. Um, and you could also, you know, all joking aside about your cases, you could try grounding the board to your metal case to see if somehow that kind of fixes some sort of interference or adds more. I don't know, but uh, I doubt that would hurt. Unless, of course, your case was also touching something else, but you have the awesome plexis on there to, to um, isolate it. So I would do that as an experiment just because you already have them and why not, right? But I wouldn't expect much of a result from that. Could be worth trying, though. Well, that's it for this week. But before I go, I have a question for all of you wonderful supporters. Um, I love doing these Q&As. I genuinely enjoy doing them, but they're very time consuming. This one was an hour long. It's probably going to be about that. And it took about three hours to record. Plus, I got to edit, you know, make sure to prepare everything right. And I love it. And I love spending my time doing it. And I think it's a great way to say thank you to everybody that supports as well as get to spread cool knowledge and even learn different ways to describe things because some of your awesome questions have changed the way that I describe this stuff. So I don't want to stop doing them, but I do want to just in a very positive and happy way remind people that so this is basically like a day's worth of work in total from the time I start till the time it's up on all platforms and you know the comments are, are filtered through and all of that stuff so is this something that you want me to keep doing weekly or would you prefer I do this bi-weekly monthly whatever else and then take this day to go back to doing more regular videos um, I don't want to stop doing the Monday podcasts I've been doing because I also really enjoy doing them, but they're highlighting amazing people in the gaming scene uh, or even gaming adjacent. You know, and it's just something that I, I want to continue doing because I always have said that the site is more than me and I want to do more actions to show that. So the Monday stuff aren't going away unless people want to stop talking to me, which is plausible. Uh, you know, it could happen. Um, obviously the Wednesday, Wednesday podcast is something a lot of people say that they rely on. So I would never stop that. And I don't want to stop these. I just wanted to know what you would as supporters, as the people that keep this going would prefer. Would you want to just keep going as, as we've seen? And I could probably try to get 
a video a month out that's, you know, stuff like the N64 video I did. I have a series of videos I'm working on that I want to release them all very close to within each other. So there probably won't be any extra videos for like another month and then you'll get a whole bunch. Um, but what would you all prefer? Uh, you know, if you want to, I could take polls on the support services and I guess maybe on Twitter as well, but Twitter is usually just mostly a cesspool of the people that <laughs> that are kicked off of everywhere else. So I don't know, but um, you know, it's a question I really wanted to ask because I like I am in a very amazing and grateful position where I, I like doing all of this stuff. So when I run into corners like this, I want to ask you what you think. And even if you're not the type of person that would normally comment, um, you know, I know it sucks and it's boring, but if you wouldn't mind taking the time uh, and I would do so where it is that you support just so that I could also get an idea of which support services prefer certain things. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe the people on one platform want something different than the other. I don't really know. That might've just even been a stupid thing to ask, but without asking it, how would I ever know? So uh, figured that's where we'd start with this. And if I get no responses, I think, I just think that means you either don't care, which is a good thing. Thank you. Um, or you just want me to keep doing what I've been doing. So, um, you know, say nothing and business as usual or voice your opinion. And I will always take your opinions to heart. I even take the rude ones to heart, but I just, I'm a human being. So if you say, I disagree with you, here's why I'm going to listen and I'm going to listen clearly. But if you're like, Hey, you fucking moron, why did you do that? I'll still try to read it, but I'm not going to probably take you nearly as seriously. So, you know, just keep that in mind. But anyway, thank you all so much for supporting in any way possible, because it's you who's keeping all of this going. And it is you who's going to continue keeping it going in the future. So I want to do it your way in situations like this where I have a choice. So thank you all very much. And I'll see you next week.